Biochemist Susan Martinez says she always felt supported as a woman in science, but she knows there are challenges, scarce numbers, family pressures, even the threat of discrimination or harassment. For today's podcast, I talked with the U of I's Interim Vice Chancellor for Research about her own experience as a woman in STEM, efforts to curb sexual harassment on campus, and her work with national groups to stop universities from simply passing the harasser on to other schools. We also talked about the state of federal research funding, expansion plans at the U of I Research Park, and the Chancellor's new economic development efforts. We'll be back after this. Hey, Jim Rosso, News Gazette Media Vice President, reminding you that we have a ton of podcasts available at newsgazette.com every day of the week. From Dave Gentry's Morning Show to Scott Beatty's News Hour to Brian Barnhart's Penny for Your Thoughts. Head to our website, newsgazette.com, and search for podcasts. This is Julie Worth, and welcome back to Campus Conversation. Today I'm talking with Susan Martinez, Interim Vice Chancellor for Research at the University of Illinois. She holds an endowed professorship in biochemistry at the U of I, and her research into protein synthesis and RNA-protein interactions earned her recognition as a university scholar. In her current role, she's responsible for oversight of the vast campus research enterprise, as well as the U of I Research Park. Susan, thanks for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Julie. Let's start with some background. Um, where did you grow up, and how did you wind up here at Illinois? Sure. I grew up near Seattle in a town called Everett, Washington. Uh, my mom and my dad were, um, my mom was a teacher, and my dad was a commercial salmon fisherman. I uh, went to Washington State University, which ironically was embedded in the, the wheat fields, and uh, I moved here sight unseen uh, to the cornfields for graduate school in biochemistry in 1985. How did you get interested in biochemistry? Did you have an inspiration? You know, I always liked science. Um, it, it was really exciting. Um, I had the luxury at that time at Washington State of not having to declare a major um, until much later. So my junior year, I discovered I really loved chemistry, but I loved biology, so I just put the two of them together. You, um, as I understand it, helped develop a new antibiotic in your previous life in private sector. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I've had two ventures um, that I uh, worked with the private sector to help um, develop two different types of antibiotics. One was as um, during my postdoc at MIT. Uh, my postdoctoral advisor, Paul Schimmel, was an a, a entrepreneur. He's a very good friend of one of our alumni, Phil Sharp. And uh, together they worked on starting a number of companies. So near the end of my postdoctoral work, I was the third employee at a new company called Cubis Pharmaceuticals. I worked with Cubis for about three years. I helped write the first patent, uh, the first business um, plan, the first corporate profile. It was really an exciting uh, experience to build the ground uh, the build, the business from the ground up uh, and you know after three years I went back into academia but the company went on to grow to about 600 people and made a life-saving drug called cubicin and was sold to Merck in 2014 so that was that was fun and then later on another company on the west coast that one was on the east coast called Anacor uh, pharmaceuticals uh, was just starting on, getting off the ground had about 10 people and they stumbled upon the molecule that I work on called Lucille tRNA synthetase. It's a housekeeping protein that everyone has. And their uh, molecule uh, was uh, targeting my molecule. And I helped them interpret the action. And um, that also became another lead antibiotic, which was very, very fun. So you oversee um, a pretty broad um, research enterprise at the university, as I mentioned before. 
uh, totals something like 400 million, 500 million a year that you draw in federal funding, or is Yes, and we think, like to think about it in terms of research expenditures, which uh, reflects our corporate interest, um, national lab interest, our federal interest, our state interest. So that number is around um, $640 million annually. So that's how much you... We spend on research through the University of Illinois. From federal, through federal grants and other sources as that's well. That's correct. Okay. And when you were appointed, you talked about ensuring that diverse ideas are heard in research. And I wondered what you meant by that and what some of your goals are. I know you're interim, but, you know, as vice chancellor. Yeah, I think that is uh, really centered in our what we call an ecosystem of interdisciplinary institutes. Um, Interdisciplinary means that two different disciplines will come together together. Um, with the bold idea, they'll they'll learn to talk together. They'll learn to talk across each other's languages, and it's truly synergistic. So when that happens, new frontiers are born, and I think that's what's led to a lot of the innovation on this campus. You may um, recall, uh, if you've been around for a while, the Beckman Institute emerging. I happened to be a graduate student at that time, and the lab I was in was one of the first in that lab. That was really a novel. Uh, concept at that time nationally and internationally where the neurosciences and biology and engineering were put together in the same building and uh, to collide and interact and that became a major success and we became a role model for the rest of the nation to do the uh, something similar and then of course we have NCSA um, which is another interdisciplinary institute that reports to me and the technology they bring to all sectors of the campus has been really uh, frontier changing And we all know about the IGB, the Institute of Genomic Biology, that's now been named after Carl Woese, one of our real big pioneers in biology and microbiology. Uh, These models for what we call convergent research are being looked at across the nation, across the National Academies to understand why we do it so well in the Midwest. Uh, We had seven institutes uh, that reported to me when I started the strategic plan is launching uh, two more and a third one to follow soon. So uh, we're going to be built on an ecosystem of 10 institutes. Um, and I think that's where, to go back to your original question, these new ideas, these diverse ideas, these bold ideas come together to really flourish and move forward. How important is federal research funding to operations here? And how has the U of I fared on that in the last few years? Federal research funding is really important. Um, um, it's absolutely a partnership, uh, one where what we do on this campus in the Midwest, and we do so well, helps drive the economy not only in our community and our state, but also across the nation. So this has been a long-term partnership. Um, we are involved as one of America's leading um, research institutions uh, with the AAU, uh, and uh, this is the Tier 1 Research Institutes. And we, uh, we and uh, as well as the APLU for land grant institutes, and we constantly work with federal agencies and our lawmakers um, to ensure that we're investing those federal dollars in ways that will advance the nation. Have you seen any changes in that in the last few years in terms of the amount of funding available, or has it been fairly steady? And um, do you see any threats, I guess, to academic research from the political front or otherwise? Yes. You know, um, As much as uh, we worry about uh, funding coming and going, um, we see places like the NIH, um, which is for health um, and biology and medical advances. That's been fairly steady. The the budget for there doubled 
about 15 years ago, um, and now you, ho- you hope to think they keep up with that kind of pace, but it's been very steady. That doesn't mean it's easy to get those grants. Um, it's a very competitive, peer-reviewed process. That's another model for the, for the world. Um, the um, uh, NSF, which specializes in education and non-health-related research, um, including engineering research, has been fairly steady. Uh, there was an increase in the NSF, so um, that's been very, very helpful. Uh, and, you know, we work with our national security agencies. Um, we have a world-class college of engineering, and we work closely with them to help uh, with the uh, nation's security. We have um, seen threats. For example, there's a great concern about foreign influence um, that you might have seen across uh, different uh, medias and um, that have come out of with some specific examples from other uh institutions, research institutions. And I'd say um, we've been thankfully a bit ahead of that game thinking about this. That doesn't mean that we've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, but we're working very carefully to make sure we protect not only our innovations, but our nation's innovations uh, so that we can properly capitalize them on them to bring back uh, that investment of federal dollars. Are you talking about companies that copy you know, infringe on copyright or copy intellectual property or security yeah, that's, threats? Yeah, that's one example, and there's uh, there's security threats, too. And um, we have a great team um, that has been working to raise awareness um, with our administrators, our faculty, and our staff. I know Huawei has been in the news, uh, and you they have a presence in the research park. They're still there, correct? No, no. Oh. Yeah, no, Huawei... Um, uh, uh, decided to voluntarily move out about mm, uh, in the last six to nine months. So uh, that was probably helpful with the national conversation going on. Um, we can talk about the research park. And there's been a lot of development there recently in the last year or so with some sales of some buildings and um, new companies and a new master plan that would pretty much triple or double the size of the park, I guess, or triple the size of the park. Um, what's next on the horizon? Is it the conference center expansion? And if so, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, so um, it's been really exciting because the Research Park and Enterprise Works, our incubator, were transitioned after a lot of careful thought over the last uh, couple years from the system, uh, which is over three universities, to the campus. And the chancellor decided to put it under uh, my my portfolio. It's the third largest employer in Champaign County, so uh, that in and itself is incredibly important. And as it was handed to me, the president and the chancellor uh, gave us the mission to uh, double its size and double its impact. So we're really going for that. The conference center um, is um, an expansion that that we really need to host some of the big events from the big companies that we host in our our research park. So we're very, very excited about that. That's uh, clearing the way. The second um, project that is incredibly exciting is a greenhouse. Uh, that we're going to um, put up. Um, it's a state-of-the-art uh, greenhouse, which will allow the tall crops that we grow to really um, be uh, properly bred and grown in, in that space, um, which we haven't really had. That plays, upon, uh, plays off of a $80 million investment from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, and um, what we're really excited about with that project, which is forming these ripe seeds, which have used uh, innovations to make photosynthesis more more efficient and grow bigger plants, uh, thus more food sources, um, 
that particular thing, uh, project is very important to economic development, but more importantly to Bill Gates, it's a type of seed that can transform the economy of Africa. So in this public-private partnership within our uh, College of ACES, the um, Institute for Genomic Biology, uh, Plant Biology, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and uh, again, our research park, um, we really look forward to having lots of impact there. With the conference center, um the U of I, I think, invested initially about $11 million when that was built. Did you recoup that investment somehow, and, and does it cover itself in terms of operating costs, or is this going to require another outlay and investment from the campus? Well, I wasn't around at that time, so I can't speak exactly to that investment, but I would, I would say that uh, uh, we look at that as a major success. Um, the I-Hotel fused to the conference center has provided a great um, – uh, synergy for bringing in uh, really top-notch, sophisticated uh, businesses into the conference center or symposiums or research-related events uh, into the conference center where we can house them right at the, right at the conference center, and then they can have access to the, uh, to the research park that's nearby. Uh, that particular um, operation is under our student affairs so they have also reaped some financial benefits from the initial investment, which is why they were eager, you know, to expand the conference center so we can bring in larger and uh, conferences and have more engagement with the outside community and the outside world. How has the feed mill finally going up, the new one, um, going to affect the research park expansion? Is, it, is there a direct link at all? Or? Well, it, it certainly provides us with more room. But what's really exciting about the feed mill is that feed mill has been around for a lot of years um, and now what they're, what they're building out in the South Farms is a state-of-the-art feed mill that's going to allow our students to learn um, modern, <laughs> modern technologies with modern equipment. So we're really excited about this partnership between um, campus and the, um, and the ACES College. Do you have any idea what might go in its place? Uh, I don't right now. Um, I do know that we are um, constantly... Um, uh, going out and talking to new companies, and by word of mouth, companies are coming to us uh, to try and get into the research park. So as we fill different buildings in the, in the research park, um, we put up new ones. Uh, and so we're working on that sector right now. How has the sale of the buildings, I know last year I think uh, Fox Atkins sold off 11 buildings to a, a different investor, or at least majority ownership. How has mm -hmm. that affected things at the research park? I know it was done in part to raise money for park expansion, um, but has it changed any, the way things work there at all? You know, I think it's given us a few more players to think about, um, and I think with a few more players um, and getting to know our partners, it's also giving us some more opportunities. Uh, the owners of uh, and representatives from GEM um, have been down frequently to um, interact with us and try and understand um, our needs in the research park and how to work with us um, as efficiently as possible because they want the same thing that we, we do. They are very interested in, um, in growing the research park, which again is my mission to, to double the, the research park in whatever capacity that means. I remember when the research park was first created, I thought the original master agreement called for the university to eventually take over ownership of those buildings, like in 30 years or something. Is mm -hmm. that still part of the agreement? Do you know? That's still part of the agreement. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it might be more like 50 years, although I could be corrected on that. So that's that's a while. But, you know, uh, we've refreshed the uh, agreements um, periodically about every four to five years. 
with a um, uh, request for new proposals. Um, and um, that's going to be coming up, too, when the current um, agreement the current agreement expires. Uh, so as as the research part grows and becomes um, more complex and more sophisticated and we have um, more engagement, it gives us the time to really evaluate how to work with our partners to continue the type of growth um, in the current environment. Did the university get any income from the sale of those buildings or did it all just sort of go back into the Research Park and the, de yeah, the there's, developers there's themselves. No, it's it, it's um, basically goes to the developers, um, and it doesn't come back to the to the university. Okay. Does Gem you think have a commitment to own them for the long term? Because I know there was some a couple of buildings sold about ten or fifteen years ago that eventually ended up. I think the owners went bankrupt or something, or they ended up in auction, and then were recently at least the State Farm building I think was recently sold to a new owner. Are you? You know, yeah, so Jem seems to be very enthusiastic about being here for the for the long term. And one of those buildings that you talked about that was in um, receivership, uh, the university worked with the foundation to purchase because we realized that 85% of that building was occupied by our own people. So it made good financial sense over the next several years to um, to purchase that that building. And uh, the third building uh, that you're, you were referring to, I think, is right now the deal is closing with a new owner, so that gives, will probably give us a new partner. So is that kind of the plan going forward, maybe to diversify ownership a little bit of the buildings or keep them? Well, I wish I could answer that question. Right now we have a committee um, that is looking at um, what would work best um, in a call for new proposals when the current development agreement uh, expires. So we are looking at all sorts of ideas for that. Is that expire in 2020, 2021, something like that? I believe it's 2021. But you're putting out a call now for proposals? Not yet. Oh, we're okay. working, yeah, we're working on developing the um, parameters for that. Okay. Um, how will the research park tie into the whole DPI effort? I know there were some concerns early on about shifting too much emphasis to Chicago and how the research park would fit into that. And um, I don't know, did you share those concerns? And, you know, where do things stand now? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I know it's had a lot of our community members and even people on campus concerned. Um, the, the good news, I guess, is that not only am I over the research park, but I'm also the point person on campus for interfacing with um, the DPI and also the Illinois Innovation Network. So that gives me an opportunity to see with at least weekly contact with the people in charge of the DPI, such as the current interim director, Bill Sanders. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to really see what's going on in the DPI, how they're interacting with the state, and how that relates back to the to us on campus and in the research park. Uh, we look at the DPI as a portal into Chicago. It's a portal for access. It's a por portal for Chicago to better realize what's downstate and look us, uh, at us more closely. We really don't believe that that's going to be a drain on the research park. We think it's going to only help us grow. Uh, the companies in Chicago, as they see what a gem we have in the research park, they love to see the students that are being trained in the research park um, and the potential for faculty engagement. So we look at this as a, a one plus one is, is greater than the, the sum. Greater than two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, did the shift to having the campus kind of control the research park and the at this end, do you think that helped um, in terms of that effort, or did that make any difference? 
You know, I think there's been so much um, kind of sloshing around with uh, the change in the state, um, the state leaders. Um, there's just been a lot of stuff that's been happening um, in the middle. I do think that now we are settled with the research park under the campus, and we are settled with funding coming from the state for the DPI. Uh, that now that's kind of settling the whole situation and giving everyone confidence to move forward, all rowing in the same same direction. So people are very excited, I think, about the opportunities with the DPI. Do you have any sense of when that funding might start flowing? Uh, <laughs> yes. So we're working with the state right now. Our interim director, Bill Sanders, and our President Colleen are working very hard with uh, top levels of state leadership to uh, – uh, refine proposals um, and to um, uh, secure the land, uh, which has been promised but not secured yet. In Chicago. Yes, yes. Uh, to um, And to also develop a business plan. So really right. a very um, important step was to develop a business plan so we could um, understand how to most efficiently get it off the, efficiently get it off the ground and also grow it. So that's going on right now. You know, I've had enough... Um, uh, experience in startups, whether it was a startup biotech company or I was very involved with the startup of the Carl Illinois College of Medicine, starting up some new centers and institutes under the OVCR now. It, it, what I like to tell people, it's, it's always a very chaotic environment when you're starting something up. And if it's anything less than that, you, one should worry because you have to look at new opportunities and pivot as necessary uh, to respond. Anytime you feel comfortable, that means you've hit a plateau and your startup isn't really going to um, go much farther. So I become comfortable in those environments, trying to stay engaged so that the campus is um, able to take part in the decision making. And, you know, I really have high hopes that it's going to be a wonderful venture for the University of Illinois and for the Champaign-Urbana community. How much contact, if any, have you had with other universities that are part of this innovation network around the state? You know, in the beginning, it seemed like they weren't sure what was coming, but now they've all signed on as partners. Um, do you envision working with them more closely on some initiatives? Or? So I'm already doing that. Um, I have to give a lot of credit to our Vice President for Economic Development and Innovation, Ed Seidel. He did a tremendous job, not only trying to um, kick off the DPI and getting many international partners um, engaged, but he was also responsible for helping uh, bring in uh, uh, our own state institutions, along with some of his aides who are now at UIC, uh, T.J. Augustine and Christy Kazmuck, they worked very, very hard to bring uh, all of the state uh, public institutions at the table. I'm part of a council with those, and we've had um, a few workshops that either myself or uh, members of my team have been at to help us understand the needs across the state and what the highest priorities are to uh, move the whole Illinois Innovation Network forward. So I feel very good about that. And um, again, I've been the point person at that and have a lot of information coming in and uh, do my best to try and uh, align it with what's going on on campus. You also chair, I think, the Chancellor's Economic uh, Community Advi Economic Advisory Committee. Um, Economic Development, I'm sorry, Community yes. Advisory Committee. Um, he talked about that a couple of weeks ago in general terms, how he wanted to make this campus, this community, sort of a center for ag tech and med tech and data sciences. Um, how, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and um, how that, you know, because the campus is already sort of known for those areas. Um, but, you know, how do you envision that going forward? Oh, you know, this has been a lot of fun. And um, 
to chair that uh, economic development committee. It's comprised of uh, local business leaders and people who are really um, interested in economic development. Uh, and when we started, I, I wasn't sure how this how this would go. Um, we talked about the priorities for the community. Uh, we broke off into subcommittees. I remember um, one of our members, Rick Stevens, saying, can we not call it committees? And so we changed it to teams. Uh, and the teams um, went off and, and, and they did a tremendous amount of work. I was so impressed with the work that they've done. It's about a year old now, and we met maybe in the last couple of weeks, and the teams reported uh, uh, back out to um, the group uh, after having sort of some sub-reporting um, over the past year. And I have to say, we were wowed by the level of engagement of the community on these teams to think about how to advance the biomedical um, industry on this campus and to think about the state funding that's been Al, um, allocated toward a translational research facility that would help that. Think about uh, the tremendous work uh, by Dennis Beard and um, others on um, developing the ag tech community and bringing a, an accelerator to campus um, to think about uh, how we can market our community and the community members are doing that in partnership with Eric Miner, our new chief marketing officer, I mean, I just have to say, we didn't know where that would go. Um, it's a year later, and it was totally the wow factor what was brought to the table by our community partners um, at our last meeting. So we are very excited about that. How does it overlap with or work with the, you know, the Economic Development Commission and other existing bodies? I mean, aren't, aren't there groups sort of doing this already, or is this more focused on particular areas? Well, the good news is we're aligned with them. For example, uh, Carly McQuarrie is, is on uh, this group. Um, uh, representatives from Parkland are on this group, um, as well as business leaders. So we stay in very close contact. Um, one other person that our chancellor brought to the table is he, um, uh, he recruited a government relations person, Bob Flater. Bob Flyter's been very busy, very active, um, and engaging in our with our uh, community government leaders as well as um, the leaders in the state. And he has experience um, uh, with his work in the state over the Department of Agriculture, I think, and as a former representative. So he's been a great addition uh, to our team. I guess I wondered how it's different from what they were already doing. I think it brings. Um, I think again, it brings. Uh, Another viewpoint, another tool, um, and the power behind the university. We have a lot of um, diverse minds and disciplines at the university, and so we bring that to the table. We engage uh, various faculty members or staff members as needed, and it just brings more of a powerhouse. And it's maybe a place that they can um, melt into together and synergize. Going forward, is it going to continue meeting, or do you have sort of a plan for a timeline to do something <laughs> as a result of these team reports? Yeah, I think the ag tech development is the farthest along, and that would be really fun for you to think about getting those people in for a conversation because we plan on a launch for that in early December for the accelerator that they've been working working so hard on. Um, and Tell me I, what the accelerator is. The accelerator is a great idea. So the Enterprise Works, for example, is our incubator where brand new companies can come in, get a start with a new idea. 
Um, we subsidize rents. Um, uh, Laura Frerichs, who's over the research park and enterprise works, and her team, um, they provide a lot of programming to help these um, new business entrepreneurs um, develop. An accelerator is kind of like a boot camp. It's a boot camp where you're a little bit farther along and, you know, as a scientist, the business community is very, very different than what you're used to in the, especially the academic research world. And so it teaches you how to bring your innovations into the business world. It's usually a six to eight week uh, boot camp. Um, these entrepreneurs compete uh, to get into the boot camp. Uh, many companies, um, venture capitalists, or um, come to these accelerators to look over the, the talent, the ideas, the innovation, and think about investing in them. Uh, the particular group that um, that uh, uh, our um, ag tech people are working with um, really like the idea of using the sports stadiums um, to as a venue um, for companies to to gather and the entrepreneurs to gather and to exchange ideas and get to know each other. So uh, we're just really, really excited where that's heading. And so I would say stay tuned for, um, I think it's the first week of December when this will launch. And we see this as um, not only will it be helpful to our local entrepreneurs, um, it will be helpful to the outside community, whether it's other entrepreneurs or venture capitalists or major corporations to come into our community and see the infrastructure that we have, which is truly a powerhouse. I, you were going to talk about some of the other aspects of this of this the economic development group. Um, one that intrigued me was just sort of marketing Champaign Urbana as, you know, a place to come, a place to be, not a place to overlook. You know, we've often our chancellor often says we're too Midwest humble and uh, that we don't uh, sell ourselves enough. Um, we're a little apologetic, um, and he says he's done with that. And so he brought in um, our chief marketing officer. Uh, Eric Miner, who has a lot of experience in um, the outside world. Um, and so he he has been coming to the table with our economic development leaders um, who are really enthusiastic about this because our idea is if we can attract more businesses, if we can attract more people, um, if we can build a culture where uh, people realize what a great community this is to live, work, play, learn, um, and do it in a way that has great work-life balance, um, we think will not only attract people, get, but get them to stay. Uh, our provost likes to say that uh, Silicon Valley thanks um, the University of Illinois for building it. <laughs> and now it's become so expensive to live on the West Coast in California that when we do recruit, and it happens quite frequently, people back from California they realize what a wonderful life they can have in Champaign-Urbana and get many of the amenities that they found on the West Coast, whether it's um, through the Cranert Center, through athletics, uh, through just local festivals. It's just such a wonderful, warm community, uh, and um, I think people notice that. So marketing that is really important. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just being a woman in science, a woman in academia in science, um, in STEM. I counted, I think, three other faculty members in biochemistry who are women out of maybe 16. Is that fairly representative of what you see in the sciences? And is that changing? Is that an issue? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. And there's no easy answer uh, to this. So recall that I was also a graduate student in this department of biochemistry, a wonderful department, a storied department, a very successful department. 
um, I became head of biochemistry at one point, and then I started realizing as we were recruiting, and I felt very supported uh, by my peers, that only two women had ever been even promoted to full professor in that department. And I don't think that that's so far um, removed from other departments that are more um, in the quantitative sciences, like in engineering and math and, and chemistry. Uh, having said that, um, uh, we've worked really hard at this in chemistry and engineering, math and biology uh, to recruit more women, some young leaders. We need to work really hard to retain them. Um, what we find is we do such a good job at Illinois of training um, our junior faculty and they become very successful and other places notice and then they want, the <laughs> they want to steal them. And so we need to work very hard on retaining them. Um, this, this idea of um, working your way up as a woman in STEM um, is not just a local conversation, it's a national conversation. It's been around since, you know, I first got interested in, in science. Uh, and I am now at um, several national venues to help think about things like sexual harassment or attracting and retaining more women in STEM. Uh, all three national academies of medicine, of engineering, uh, and of uh, uh, science have set up an action collaborative that um, to try and uh, deal with the, the challenges of sexual harassment. Um, I've been a part of that action collaborative. In fact, we signed on very early uh, to that. Uh, thanks to the work of Kate Clancy, one of our uh, professors who has been very involved of kind of ripping off the Band-Aid on several issues. Um, I'm also through the APLU, which is our Association of Land-Grant Universities, been engaged in um, trying to develop more opportunities for women in STEM. And AAU, Americans Leading Research Institutions, there's 65 of us that belong to that. We are having a conversation about that. What's really um, interesting is that there's a, a poster now that they show that there's an iceberg of issues. Um, we only see often the tip of the iceberg. And sexual harassment can happen in many different ways, whether it's innuendos, it's choice of language, um, it's advances. Um, and so there's all sorts of things that women can experience. So now that this is being developed and um, um, awareness is certainly being raised, uh, administrations across the nations are standing up and, and noticing, and um, processes are changing. And I'm very, very encouraged by that. I've always felt very supportive supported as I've gone through my my career and also encouraged. Um, having said that, I'm sure that parts of that iceberg um, uh, maybe affected me at, at times. Um, but I think the goal of this is to reduce and melt that iceberg so that uh, women coming behind us, uh, like my daughter, don't face these times, types of um, challenges or, or uh, uh, second guesses um, on their own abilities um, as they move through their careers. I was wondering if you experienced it personally, any of these issues. Coming you know, up. I think for me, I felt very supportive. Support, I said that again, supported. <laughs> um, you know, I think sometimes you're overlooked um, because there are so few women in um, many of the STEM fields or in administration. 
You're often um, chosen to be representatives on various committees because they like to have diverse representation, which in and of itself is incredibly important. Um, on those, you, I think many women get a, um, a little wary of, um, of the time commitments on being on all these committees, so that can be a drain on you, and it can cause um, sacrifices to other parts of your work life or family life, whatever, whatever you have. But I would say on the deepest levels of the iceberg, you know, I'm happy to say I've been fairly well supported on that. But certainly being um, overlooked at times is something that I think most women uh, experience. Did you have to uh, sort of work toward tenure while you were having kids? I know you have a family. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, so both my husband and I are um, professors, and uh, we began our academic career in Houston. And we sort of, uh, there's always a question about when you want to start having your children. Um, and so we sort of waited till we were close to the end of the tenure process. Um, we both uh, had funding at that point, and um, I will say that we moved from Houston to um, Illinois, Champaign, Illinois, with three kids in diapers. So that kind of shows you uh, uh, the type of uh, pace and stamina we were on. But it was a wonderful move for us. That's it took five days to you know, to move three kids with diapers, but we did it. <laughs> did you, so that was a deliberate decision you two made, right? Just kind of to make sure you didn't change one or the other. At that time, um, it, we felt like it was the best decision for the for the two of us. Um, some of my colleagues um, have chosen to have children um, as postdocs, um, and I'd say they have a lot more energy than uh, to share with their children than I do. So I think when we talk about it, we always think of the cost-benefit, and no matter where you're at in the spectrum, I think there's, there's pros and cons in when you have children. I think this campus has been um, really, really good about providing rollbacks on tenure for men and women that choose to have children uh, during the tenure time. Been very proactive compared to other campuses. Um, uh, when I was at Houston, you know, we basically I had to figure out my own how would I double teach at one at one point, um, and so I'd have the time off when uh, my children um, were born. So they were supportive there, but I worked it out here. I think we have a very well working process that really encourages family to have children. I wondered what supports maybe you. <clears throat> suggested or put in place, if anything, or you would like to see maybe to enhance that to make it, because I know it's still a struggle for a it, lot of it's professors. Still a, it's still a struggle, and I think mentorship is really, really important on that, um, encouraging um, people that everything will be okay. You know, you uh, uh, there's lots of families. Um, in fact, you can get a lot of community built and a lot of work done quite frankly, um, in this community, because how often do you see your colleague on the, on the sideline of a soccer um, uh, soccer game or uh, picking them up at the local daycare? I mean, I've actually found it a, one, uh, a wonderful way to make connections and network. So, you know, you kind of roll families into your work-life balance, and it not only helps um, you grow personally, but also uh, uh, career-wise. You mentioned the topic of sexual harassment, which, of course, has been a big issue here over the last year or so. A lot of cases have come out publicly and, and you know, information about how the campus, you know, may or may not have handled some cases over the years. Um, how concerned are you about that specifically, and what do you think this campus needs to do to change that? Well, the good news is I think we're already doing it. Uh, the chancellor um, felt like this uh, this issue was of great importance, and with the national um, spotlight on this and all the national groups that are forming to help make change. Um, he uh, 
um, immediately opened up a position of uh, the Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Uh, Sean Garrick is now on campus. Um, what's wonderful about Sean is he comes from um, uh, a STEM background. That doesn't mean to dismiss the other backgrounds, but, you know, an area where there's not as much diversity. And so I think he has, you know, firsthand experiences um, of um, problems in these areas. So Sean is just, he just arrived in, in August and he's coming up to speed. But I think that shows a real commitment by campus for change. I think there's um, policies and processes um, that the chancellor and the provost and uh, with some help from me are putting into place to make sure that we don't just um, uh, pass the harasser, as is often said at the, at the national level as the Band-Aid is ripped off of these subjects. We want to make sure everybody's safe. In other words, don't just encourage someone to leave and agree to not talk about it. It, I think, happened in a few of these cases, as we saw with a report last week by Illinois Public Media. Um, That's right. And I, and I know that the chancellor and the provost are committed to ending those types of confidentiality clauses. Have they already taken steps to do that, do you know, or is that going to be part of the recommendations coming down? You know, I think um, with everything, these are works in progress. But having said that, these are personnel issues, and oftentimes when they're personnel issues, um, they're kept private while we, while we um, investigate those and really understand what's at the heart of it. So e- even though you may not be hearing about that as a recommendation, they're already being folded into the fabric of our processes. Are you comfortable with where things are now are going to be with all of these changes in place? Or do you think maybe more is needed? Well, I think there's always room for growth here and and in other areas. And we're always learning, but we're also teaching, you know, other institutions. By uh, being at the table at um, these national groups uh, that, again, are ripping off the (laughs) Band-Aid, as we like to say, wrestling with really difficult issues, educating, comparing experiences, um, I think we're definitely moving in the in the right um, uh, on the right path, and and I do think we're doing it at a good pace too. So I'm pleased. Um, change is hard; it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but we are changing, and uh, there's a commitment to change. Is it particularly difficult to weigh these cases in academia with faculty privacy rights and rules protecting academic freedom? When, when a faculty is involved, it's, it's challenging because of tenure issues. And tenure, of course, has been um, really important to bring out new ideas and diverse thoughts. So we, we, we know that, and that's very important. I actually think, aside from the faculty issues, there's two things. It's a personnel issue. It's being fair to the personnel who are involved, and that also includes the victims. A lot of the victims, uh, most of the time, the victims would like to stay, you know, um, quiet. You know, they've already been through a lot. It's hard for them. That's not to say it's the case of all victims, but when we factor in um, processes forward, we think about not only the perpetrator, but also the victim. How do you feel about some of the guidelines put out by the current administration, Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education, in terms of those protections? I I know this is not really your area necessarily, but you're studying this issue. Um, Do you think those are, you know, accurate or or should be followed, or do you have any concerns about? Well, I I think due process is is always very, very important. Um, There's no doubt about that. But I also think this is an area that we need to talk about, and we just need to do it at a rapid pace. Um, 
Uh, everyone's always really busy. There's a lot of things going on on campus. Uh, there's issues that pop up all the time. And I think what's really important is to pay attention. And I think we on this campus are paying attention. When one of these pops up, um, we pivot to really look at it, especially, you know, learning um, from ours and others' experiences um, to try and get at the get at the issue and, and make decisions on, on how to move forward. That's um, best for everyone involved. And again, to now with the new step to make sure we're not passing the harasser. So I'm very pleased by that progress. Okay. Well, thanks very much for being with us today. It was interesting discussion. Thank you very much, Julie.